Welcome to Breaking the Surface, where we break into a delicious beverage and also dive into the topic at hand. I'm one of your co-hosts, Taylor Kramer. I'm the owner and lead producer for Cold Shower Media. I'm Beth Milligan. I'm a journalist here in Traverse City. And I'm another friend. I am Anthony Weber, and I am a pastor and an ethics teacher, and I am something of a fashion icon when it comes to oversized sweaters. The point here is that we want to go beyond the talking points to get to the depths of what is happening in our world. It should also be said that this podcast is part of the Boardman Review Podcast Collective in collaboration with Cold Chart Media. The Podcast Collective aims to provide unique content curated by the Boardman Review, the creative culture and outdoor lifestyle journal of Northern Michigan. So today on the show, we are drinking a session IPA called Mallet from the Workshop Brewing Company. And the workshop is located in downtown Traverse City uh, in the Warehouse District. Um, This beer, the Mallet, is described as a crushable, low-gravity, local IPA with medium bitterness, a copper complexion, and piney grapefruit aromas. Um, So what do you guys think? Yeah, when I stick my nose in the glass, the the grapefruit hits me right away, and I'm a huge grapefruit fan. This is a great beer. Yeah, and my first thought when I took a sip was it's clean and crisp. Mm. Yeah, and it does have a little bit bitterness, which I don't always like, but I do like in this because I love grapefruit too. Yeah. So it's kind of, I feel like it's a little mellowed out by that. Yeah, definitely. As a bonus, the workshop is a very cool place to visit. Yes, they have excellent food too. And the other cool thing is that for those that have, spent some time listening to our show, they are aware that we are part of the Boardman Review Podcast Collective. And one of our uh, other shows as part of that collective involves Pete Kirkwood, who is the owner of Workshop Brewing Company, and it's an improv-based podcast, and it is hilarious. So I wanted to use this to also lead in and encourage people to go listen to the improverbial wherever you listen to your podcasts. It is a great, lighthearted, but also sometimes philosophical approach to Proverbs. Yeah. 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 Approach to to Proverbs and the discussions they have are funny, but also a little bit enlightening as well. So go give them a listen. That's the improverbial podcast. All right. Welcome to another episode of Breaking the Surface. As we were discussing what our next topic should be, uh, we had the realization, I think it was actually Beth's idea to, since it's our 10th episode, to revisit some of the past topics that we've had and maybe have uh, some further discussion, but also discussing some of the updates that have happened. And there there has been a lot in regards to the topics we've discussed in the past, whether that would be um, Britney Spears, uh, some of the political discussions, vaccine eligibility, different things like that. A lot has continued to change. And so we wanted to touch on those and, and thought it would be a, a fitting 10th episode. So um, Beth, what have you seen specifically in the headlines right now in relation to what we've discussed in the past, it seems to be really bubbling up. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I think the free Britney conversation, which is one of the earlier episodes we did has been dominating headlines recently. Um, There's been some pretty big developments on that since the last time we spoke. So when we kind of ended the last episode, it was just like, we don't know what's going to happen with this conservatorship. We have no idea, you know, how long this process is going to be or what this is going to mean for the rest of her career, her life. And then, you know, and she hadn't really spoken publicly much at all at that time, which is something else we talked about on the show. And since then she has, I mean, she, she had a court hearing where she had about, I think it was about 20 minutes of testimonial to this judge where she kind of 
laid out her version of the story and it was pretty disturbing. Um, there's a transcript you can read on that, right? Yeah, there is a transcript. We can link to that. Um, it's, you know, she talked about basically her allegation was that her father has abused this conservative ship, that she has been forced to take lithium, uh, that she has an IUD, which is a reproductive device that she has been wanting to remove so that she can have more children and her, um, family or controlling conservatorship is not allowing her to do that. So basically saying she not only doesn't have control over the medications that are being forced on her, but she also doesn't have control of her reproductive um, uh, rights or her own body. Uh, She talked about being miserable and depressed that she's tried to put on a happy public face because she thought that's what she was expected of her, what she had to do. But she talked about crying every day about being depressed and wanting her life back. So this is a pretty, you know, big jarring departure from what has happened up until now, which is just kind of quiet on her front and, you know, maybe occasional enigmatic, posts on Instagram, but really nothing coming directly from her until this came out. It was, it was pretty jarring to me. Some of those, I mean, especially if you think about as a person or as a woman, not being able to decide whether or not you have children. And these again are allegations. These are, this is her version of events, but you know, being forced to take lithium, which is a very powerful medication. It was pretty disturbing to Mm me. I don't know what you guys thought about all of that. I, I still don't understand even having read articles and trying to wrap my mind around what's going on. How is it even possible that you don't have say over the, like the IUD issue? I yeah. don't understand that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I know I don't either. And it's, it created, it's created sort of all this fallout since then. So both her court appointed attorney, and this has been a big issue. One of the things that people have talked about even legal experts who are outside the case who have expressed concern about the case is she's never had the right to her own attorney. This has always been a state, you know, a court appointed attorney. And there was, I think I saw, there's a really good New Yorker article that Ronan Farrow just recently co-published. It's a long detailed history of all this whole conservatorship and a lot of details that hadn't been public before. So I recommend checking that out. But that's one of the things that they talked about is like, if, if you walked into a room and someone was holding an ax in like a murdered body, that person would still have the right to get their own attorney for their defense, but she's never had the right to have her own attorney for her conservatorship. So that was one of the issues. So her court appointed attorney is resigning and her manager, her Mm -hmm. business manager, who's been with her since the nineties is also resigning because he said she's planning to retire. She has said, I am not going to perform anymore if my dad is controlling my career. Mm. Yeah. So there's a lot of people that seem to be leaving the sphere and their involvement is either changing or they're removing themselves from the situation. So I'm curious if that's a good thing or a bad thing. If you're, if you're on this side of, you know, Brittany really needs um, her freedom back from this conservatorship. Uh, I'm curious to see how that plays out. Cause I don't know that answer. Yeah. And I, I just, it's, it's been funny because like now like celebrities like Justin Timberlake came forward <laughs> and issued a statement saying like, I know, you know, whatever happened with Brittany and I in the past, but like, this is clearly a problem. She should be supported. Christina Aguilera, who had also been, you know, around the same career as her had come out in support. So I think there's been a lot of people who have been asking for support for her. I will say that the judge yeah. just issued a ruling recently that her father, he denied the request to remove the father from the conservatorship, but it didn't sound like that was going to be the last hearing on that issue, that there was still a lot of paperwork that had to be filed. There were likely more hearings to come, but I, 
when I read all the details of that, again, just assuming that her version of events is true, we don't know. And that will probably be part of the future process. She'll have to provide evidence of these allegations. And her dad has issued claims saying, well, I'd be happy to look at the evidence of this because I don't think this is true and I don't know what's happening with her medical team. So he's claiming ignorance on some of these claims. But even if like we assume half of it is true, I know I talked to you guys about this before, but I, I feel like I would either kill myself and I'm not being dramatic or kill mm-hmm. someone if I was in that situation to have that little control over my own body and my own life. I think it would drive anyone insane. And, and the idea is that these are supposed to be conservatorships for people who are in extremely debilitating conditions. Yeah. And yet she's performing and being asked to make millions of dollars. And like, even people who are managing her conservatorship are as like business managers, whatever, are making more money than she's being allowed to have as an annual salary. So it's just like yeah. a ridiculous situation to me. And it seems weird to me if her father is the conservator, isn't it his job to know what kind of medical treatment she's getting? Right. Like, I don't think you can plead ignorance on that. Yeah. I don't think you can either. Yeah. It, it, Beth, to what you had said, just that lack of freedom and, and the response that can elicit from certain people. Um, this, this kind of worries me in the sense of if this doesn't go in her favor, then I think that's when a sense of hopelessness could really set in where it's like, we, you know, we took the fight to them. We tried to make this change. And we are yet to know kind of how that's going to turn out, but I would really be concerned for her mental health even more so like she's been open about the mental health struggles that she's had. We've watched some of those things unfold, but this is different. This is like being able to very clearly point to the fact that the conservatorship is, is causing some trauma in a person's life. And if after all this is said and done, that conservatorship is still in place, I'd be very concerned about how she's going to end up. Yeah. And I wonder, cause we talk sometimes about like freedom or like the libertarian thing about like your approach to life, like government intervention or whatever. And I think this for me is a case, an example of where I think to take control of someone's life and completely remove their autonomy has to require such extreme conditions that I just as an outsider observer of what's been detailed, I don't think it warrants it. I don't have access to all the court documents, but to me, it seems so invasive unless you're being imprisoned, you know, for a crime that justifies imprisonment or you're truly are debilitated to the point where you might really harm yourself or you can't like, usually it's because people can't like feed themselves yeah. or they can't like, you know, do basic tasks, but someone who is of, you know, who is in possession of their faculties and their body and has children and has is the ability to perform. So she's clearly not, you know, broken down. She can perform a a whole complicated show. I just think there has to be such extreme justification for doing that, that I don't see here. It seems so invasive to take over Mm -hmm. someone's life like that. Yeah. Based on the information we have, I would totally agree with you. Yeah. And there's also, have you seen that clip of Justin Bieber? So we had kind of talked about Justin Bieber, I think a little bit in Britney's episode too, where we just are kind of comparing and contrasting maybe the differences between what men and women in fame experience. And there was a clip of Justin Bieber essentially telling fans that had camped outside of his home and they had asked for a hug. And he was just like, no, this is my home. This is my place of rest. Like you don't get to, to, essentially camp and camp out and stalk me and then ask for a hug. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that that was, that was really interesting because something like that, you can frame multiple ways too of, Oh, he's just, you know, he, he signed up for this type of fame. Like 
he's beginning, he's making money. He's getting paid millions of dollars. Um, and sometimes we look at that and we forget all the other, uh, I guess, trauma that can be associated with being under the public eye and so much scrutiny and stuff like that. Cause for Britney's you know, downfall, we watched it play out and it was oftentimes due to the immense pressure that she was under from being so famous. This wasn't anything other than that. I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. So, so that was one, one, um, episode, but we certainly have others we could talk about. I'm just curious, Anthony, do you, did you have one that came to mind that you want to talk about? Oh, I, I've got a couple that we'll hopefully be able to get to. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of them was just an article a couple of weeks ago and the title was GOP led Michigan Senate investigation finds no evidence of election fraud. And I think for many people that's not new news, but <laughs> Um, I had posted that on my Facebook feed just because of all the conspiracy theories swirling around. I thought it was interesting that a Republican led Michigan Senate reached the conclusion. There's no reason to think there was voter fraud in Michigan. And because you still see elections being challenged, like Arizona is another one where frankly, a sketchy group has stepped in to try to count votes. And I, I would be far less inclined to trust this group's, count than I would be anybody else's. But in spite of how many different lawsuits oh were overturned, over 60, over yeah. 60, everything that keeps going on. And then as you get down into the local levels, which is where I prefer anyway, a lot of people responsible for counting votes being genuinely upset. Like, do you really think that we are that corrupt. Like we pride ourselves to be able to do this well. And the evidence is showing that they are doing it well. And not that it is pristine, no system will be, you know, you can always find a mistake or two, but the idea that it came anywhere close to overturning election at this point, I think has to simply seem ludicrous, but we're still hearing, what is it? August, I think is the, is the month being thrown out when Biden will be removed and president Trump, ex-president Trump reinstated. And it seems like no matter how much more evidence comes forward about the legitimacy of the process, I, I feel like this conversation might not end for four years. And that's very frustrating mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. It seems to be something that when we talk conspiratorially, there's always a, a next date that is thrown out. And I've had people in my own life that I've seen very confidently state like on this date, uh, this is going to take place and Biden will be removed or Hillary Clinton will be imprisoned or whatever pick picket. Um, it's just very interesting people's willingness to attach themselves to a very specific date mm -hmm. that would just, to me, would make me nervous. Like, you know, it would make me nervous just saying on Thursday, the Milwaukee bucks are 100% going to beat <laughs> the Phoenix suns. Like that's sports, let alone something as serious as politics and presidencies and the, all the things that swirl around that. I find that really interesting. And I think it's important that we have articles like that that are shared where it says the GOP led this investigation and yeah. they still had zero findings. Um, like you said, the, the people that um, maybe didn't need that article were convinced long ago yeah. that it, that there wasn't that level of corruption that took place. And then the ones that are not convinced, they're going to, I think, just continue to tell themselves that the corruption goes deeper than even they thought. In and some ways, it's almost confirming. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 And it's easy to then to get into like the dismissiveness of like 
rhinos versus like Trumpers. And, you know, sometimes Trump supporters think yeah. that Republicans who aren't lining up behind uh, Trump have their own agenda. So then you just dismiss the claims that way. I did think it was funny. I had a friend. Um, so the Atlantic had written about the dead voters conspiracy theory in Michigan and had looked into Michigan specifically. And they had talked about um, this, you know, there, there was an allegation that like 200 Wayne County residents had voted from beyond the grave, right? So they actually investigated all of these claims and there were two instances of clerical errors. And my friend's mom was actually one of the two instances of clerical errors. So really? she, she was reported about in the Atlantic, but what happened? One man had mistakenly voted under the identity of a dead relative who had the same name as he did. So they got their ballots mixed up. And the other one, my mom, my friend's mom had returned her absentee ballot and then she died before the election. Um, so she had already turned it in and then passed away and they went to the clerk's office and tried to fix it. And the clerk said there was nothing they could do. So like this huge allegation of Wayne County dead residents voting of 200 people, it was really two. <laughs> my wow. friend's mom being one of the two. And that's what happened. I mean, yeah. Up name and someone who died before the election. So we have had a couple instances of documented fraud since the election, like in the last few weeks. And I'm sorry to say, but they have been Republicans who are trying to mm -hmm. mess with ballots and got caught ballot tampering or trying to switch, you know, parties on, on paperwork. So, um, yeah, that's not really helped the claims either. Yeah. I would say part of, I think also why I find articles like that to be important for people to share. We, there are extreme groups of people that they just simply aren't going to be convinced at this point. Yeah. Um, but I also think in order for maybe a more robust or healthy political landscape in the future, it needs to be shown that there are certain um, members of the GOP that are willing to kind of separate themselves from the storyline of corruption and the conspiracies and maybe even Trump in some sense. Now, they have not done it in a way that I find um, pleasing enough. But I, I still think that that's a step in the right direction of, hey, we led this investigation. We are clearly members of the GOP. And so by us uh, publishing our findings or whatever, that is in some way separating themselves from the Trump conspiracies. And so I think that's healthy for the future yeah. Yeah. politically. Yep. I think the only thing that's not healthy that I'm keeping an eye on now is like the follow up to it's you know the whole insurrection thing we were talking about before is just in this whole election big lie myth is that the the impact it's having on voter laws and legislation that's coming out in different states and the recent Supreme Court ruling that upheld the right of a state to enact these really tough laws, which is further guttering gutting the Voter Right Act, and I think we're going to get down to either the you know, the, the legislator, the Congress and the house are going to have to, uh, and the Senate are going to have to pass legislation that, you know, this voting act that's been discussed, or if they don't, I really think we're going to see a serious influx of, um, these really restrictive voting laws in Republican led States. And to me, like it just, it gets into really dangerous, <laughs> uh, democratic area where, you know, if you can't win election, in a fair way because the demographics of the country are changing. We've already had things like gerrymandering before, but if you're going to like really just say the way that we win elections now is by restricting who can vote. 
we talked before on the Juneteenth and 4th of July show about how freedom for some sometimes hasn't meant freedom for all voting rights has certainly mm-hmm. historically going back to Jim Crow been one of the ways that that's been enacted. So that's the thing that I'm worried about and watching now is the Supreme Court has seemed to signal we will uphold these laws if there are challenges to them. And so that's just kind of giving a green light, I think, to a lot of Republican legislators to pass more of these kind of laws. Mm. And it will only take Congress to stop that, I think. Going back to one more thing about the different kind of voting conspiracies, I ran across one a a week or two ago where there was a county or a city who recently purged several thousand voters from the voting rolls. And this was obviously post-election. And what the criticism that was coming out from that was, look, these thousands of people are purged after the election. There's the conspiracy. And the county responded by saying the reason they were purged is because they haven't voted. I think it was for 10 years, like because they haven't voted mm-hmm. is why they've been purged. <laughs> None of them voted. And yet I, I would see that going around kind of in a meme form. If this was happening in one place, how many places did it happen? Well, read the story. That's, that's where I end up encouraging people in general is once you see a story like that, that looks pretty salacious, Give it a a week or two, read all kinds of different sources that are talking about this story, and you'll usually find out that there was more to it than appeared in that initial kind of uh, adrenaline rising headline. Mm. Interesting. So just quickly, I want to clarify what you had said for myself, Beth, is that, um, yes, there might be, you know, these instances of these uh, studies or investigations that are taking place, even if they're led by the GOP so they may be willing to distance themselves from the conspiratorial stuff, but meanwhile, they're also wanting to, uh, I guess, put up put up an offensive for the next election in like, oh, this is how we we're going to make sure that we get the votes that we need. Yeah. And even just the way that the word, you know, insurrection is now being sort of phased out in the language that Republicans mm-hmm. use to talk about what happened on January 6th to talk about um, like an incident, or, you know, or just like it's, you can just watch how history gets rewritten by it happening right in front of you where we all saw the same thing happen in the country on a certain day. And then you see the spin machines go into effect. And now it's like you have completely different versions of history, depending on who you talk to, even though we all saw the same thing with our eyes. To me, it's just a really interesting process to be an adult and finally kind of be more politically aware and watch that happen right in front of you. There's been 500 arrests plus, I think, and there's at least 300 more that they're actively looking for. So by the time this is done, looks like it's going to push toward a thousand people who will likely be arrested and charged with a variety of things. So. But just a normal calm real. tourism day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Are you guys at all uh, surprised by how the, the wording is being phased out or how it, we can even just a short while after that event took place, after the insurrection took place, I'll name it. Um, <laughs> name and claim yeah, it. <laughs> is, that, is that it just, it, it's almost looked back upon as though it wasn't as serious as what it really was. That's like the feeling that I get. Yeah. I mean, I think there were a few, and, and to be fair, they were more, I would say extreme right Republican uh, legislators. But yes, there definitely has been a, a attempt by a certain camp. People, by the way, who previously acknowledged what happened and the seriousness of it. And you it, that's the unfortunate thing. And this is of us living in like the Daily Show era. This is what they sort of specialize in is like putting your comments next to each other and being like, here's the day where you said this and here's the day where you said mm-hmm. that. So you can't just kind of wiggle out of it. 
But yes, it is funny to see, I think, a realization of like, oh, we need to kind of recategorize this day because that's not going to play well with our base. It's not going to play well with our support of Trump. So Trump's people don't believe it was erection insurrection. They believe this. So we kind of need to mirror. I mean, everything is now just about gearing up for 2022 mm-hmm. and, and trying to keep the moderate Republican support without alienating the more extreme Trump supporters. And I think that's a very tough line to walk sometime for some Republicans. It is a dangerous game. I want to share this tweet from Tom Nichols and I don't know much about Tom Nichols other than he has a check mark next to his name. Mm, Um, But I, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, but it says um, if it makes you angry to hear me say that the far right is, is, or I'm sorry, that the right is far more dangerous to American society than the left, but that the left has a blind spot about its own dangerous authoritarian streak. You might be part of the problem. I think some of that could be, um, discussed what he said, but I've, that's one of the difficulties that I've had in my life the last four or five years is that somehow being in opposition to Trump and his approach all of a sudden turned me into a super liberal left person. And I, that's something I've really struggled with is just like, well, this is the person that the Republican party has tied themselves to. And because I'm in opposition of that or in opposition of an insurrection, Uh, that makes me like super far left leaning somehow. I've struggled to come to terms with that. And I think that tweet kind of says the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of those things. I think looking back from 20 years from now, I wonder if, you know, uh, yeah, this is going to be interesting to see like Trump Trump's alignment with the Republican party seems inseparable now um, until he dies or I don't know until maybe, I mean, there were criminal charges filed against the Trump organization. That's something that happened since the last time we guys, we all talked. Um, I just don't know, like, I feel like they've made their bed and they're going to lie in it with Trump until something major happens. But I wonder if they, there won't be significant regret about that. Mm-hmm. So, okay. I don't know if this is revisiting a topic or not, but this just crossed my mind. I wonder though, as the Democrats look ahead, like, okay, so Joe Biden is president, but I don't know that I know anybody who is on the left or who is democratic, who is super excited about Joe Biden. Um, even if they think he's doing an okay job, he's, he's not the kind of guy where you really rise up and you, you have this real movement. Like he doesn't command the kind of star power that Obama did. And I really wonder what going on to 2024, if Trump decides to run again, you are going to have that kind of star power on the right. And I really wonder if the left has someone in the wings who will draw that kind of enthusiasm from a voting crowd? Or maybe the Democrats don't need it because a figure like Trump would be would create his own kind of energy that by default would go toward another candidate. I don't thoughts on that. It could push a really strong, interesting independent candidate um, then, because I don't, I think there will be a contingency of Republicans who do not want to vote for Trump, you know, even to take back, like, like we had a lot of, I think people who voted third party in one or both of the last two elections because they couldn't stand Trump, but they couldn't bring themselves to vote for Hillary, you know, or Joe Biden. So I think Trump coming back will certainly energize a certain portion of the Republican base, but I think will alienate others. And I think that could split the Republican vote into maybe if there, if there was a really compelling um, independent person, because I don't know that the Republican Party would put someone forward besides Trump. The other thing to keep in mind is Trump is old. Like Trump is also mm-hmm. old. I know we know Biden's old and maybe Biden shows his age a little bit more than Trump does. But Trump has health problems. He's not the youngest yeah. guy in the world. Yep. He has been seen in videos since leaving the White House where he seems to have 
I think he had some cognitive issues before, but I think that's fair to say about Biden also. Um, but I don't know how well he's going to be in shape. I mean, I've seen behind the scenes reports where people are like, they're worried about his energy flagging. They're worried about his mental acuity. This is still, you know, three years away. I mean, he'd be campaigning before then, yeah. but I don't know what shape he's going to be in as a candidate also. Yep. Mm. That's a good point. And I don't know how Biden or Kamala, how energizing they're going to be. But I think you yeah. make a good point, Anthony, that. I just, well, thank I, you, Beth. <laughs> I just don't know if his star power is unifying for Republicans. Yeah, yeah. Is what I'm saying. Yep. Yeah. I, yes, I would agree. You make a good point there, oh, Beth. Thank you. <laughs> I want to make a good point. <laughs> okay, Taylor, make a good point about what's happening in the NCAA right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, that is one of the things that we had discussed is should NCAA athletes be paid? And it gets really complicated, as you'd be able to tell from our conversation, because there's different ends of the spectrum. So on one end, you might have a Zion Williamson. And then at the other end, you might have a small time division three, you know, person on a swim team and how complicated that can get and what, and what payments do uh, they deserve, if any. And um, so Beth, I know you've looked into some of the Supreme court cases and stuff like that, that have been taking place. What are, what are some of the updates that have actually happened since we last had our conversation? Yeah, well, there have actually been two important updates. It's so funny because when we recorded this episode, we were debating all these things that have been debated in the NCAA for decades. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, major change <laughs> happened on multiple fronts since our last episode. So one of those would be that the NCAA changed its own rules to allow athletes to profit from their like likeness and names, which is something I think all of us had agreed was like a good middle ground compromise that we thought should go through. Um, the NCAA, I don't, I wouldn't say apparently agreed, but conceded because states were taking action on their own to allow athletes to do that. And they realized it was going to be a problem if an athlete could do that in Florida, but not California. Um, so they have issued rules that allow athletes to do that. And they have also made it clear that this is sort of a stopgap measure until Congress passes some sort of federal law about college athletics and using your own name and likeness. So they're expecting legislation to be the long term enforcement of this, and that would make it standard across the country. But until then, the NCAA is making it standard. So that's one big thing. Then the other thing was the Supreme Court decision. So this now allows some compensation to flow to athletes for educational related expenses. And the legal analysis of that is that the way the ruling was written does appear to open the door to future challenges for other forms of compensation, particularly salaries. But that was not the definition of this ruling. It would be you know, maybe things like equipment or paid internships, which have not been allowed for especially football and basketball players. Um, so that is going to be coming. And what I've been reading since then is I think the things that we, the philosophical questions that the three of us talked about last time are still out there, which we sort of asked, like, what inequities might this push in the college system? How is this going to stress their resources? Colleges across the country are already dealing with declining enrollment, um, increasing costs. Uh, so yeah, now it's going to be interesting to see what happens. It's not quite clear yet. They're still building the structure of like how this is going to work. Yeah. I mean, we, I think we had all admitted as much that it's going to be really messy. And when there's issues like this that are going to be messy to try to remedy, uh, sometimes the, the parties involved get to decide it's too messy. It's not worth it. We're not going to change a thing or yes, just because it's messy, that's not a good enough reason. Um, not to, to make a change. And here, I don't think the NCAA is this um, necessarily an honorable entity, but 
with the states kind of forcing the hand, uh, that was really, really interesting because if we're talking from a, a competitive standpoint, there's really zero reason that a high level recruit for one of the major sports like football or basketball uh, wouldn't choose to go to a Florida if there's things that have been put in place for them to be able to profit off their likeness or to um, profit in general. And why would they go to a state that doesn't allow that? And so that's really interesting because it, from a competition standpoint, it's going to encourage those states, I think, if they want to keep up with with the other states um, to have to implement some of those same things to entice major recruits to come to their schools. I wonder if you'll have to see colleges enact something like the NBA does where there is in essence a salary cap for the team, like you're allowed to pay this much and it's in, and that's a very broad way of saying it, but it, there's some rules intended to not get athletes to always go to the highest paying team. Because if you play in New York or LA or someplace like that, you're just going to have access to more money. And so there's, I'll just call it a capping structure that tries to make all of the teams involved in the NBA um, at least financially viable for people to mm-hmm. choose. They might prefer one city over the other. I, I think you'd have to see the same thing happening at colleges. Otherwise, you're going to just have athlete, the really good athletes gravitate toward the college that could pay them the most or have, there's the most benefits or gets your like gets your image on the TV more so that if you can profit from your image, you're not going to get it at CMU like you are at U of M. Right. right. And so uh, I think all three of us enjoy watching March Madness. Mm-hmm. And part of the fun of March Madness is I feel like parody has become more of a thing over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. So many more upsets and you're never quite sure where it's going. I would hate to see this shift in such a way that you really begin to create a hierarchy of where the best athletes are going. Um, it's already kind of there. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like if it's not done carefully, it's really going to stretch out that distance. And I, I don't know. I, I balance that with the idea that what we've talked about before, it's these athletes, they're putting a lot out there. And it, I don't think it's wrong to have them get compensation for it in some fashion. Yeah. Yeah. That, I think that's like what it boils down to for me and why I, I probably side more with athletes on these issues is because it's something physical and anything that's physical, it's not timeless. And, you know, I, I had given kind of an example of like Mark Cuban and the computer programs he was designing and stuff. He could profit off those and still remain in school if he had wanted to. I don't think he decided not to because he became a billionaire or whatever. But um, when it's something that, you know, is a finite resource like your physical abilities, I just feel like people need to maximize that if they can. It's a very small percentage of the population that can actually use their physical abilities to profit. And for those that can, I just, I understand why they would want to milk that for everything it's possibly worth um, because it's not uh, a vocation that you can do into your, into your sixties and still profit off of. Yeah. I feel So I read sort of two contrasting stories about this because I was trying to think about it in as well rounded a way as I could. And one of it was that one of them was an editorial 
just saying that this is so overdue for black and low income students, particularly because many of them come on an athletic scholarship, but they are coming from a low income background. They don't have almost any like day to day living expenses that they can afford. So in this story, many past students were talking about their experiences, just getting enough you know, food to eat. I mean, they can often get food in the athletic facility, but outside of that, um, there were cases where coaches were trying to get kids winter coats to get them shoes. And then they like coaches would get in trouble for, you know, you know, giving financial incentives or whatever to students. But they're like, this guy literally doesn't have a winter coat and it's January, you know. So I think a lot of those cases were examples. And then just the hypocrisy of if those students went to the draft and they weren't drafted, they couldn't go back to college. You, you once, you know, once you declare you lose your scholarship. So like, instead of just, but that's not true for like hockey or soccer. It was only mm. true for football and basketball. So it really seemed targeted mm. at um, black athletes in particularly desirable sports where the NCAA wanted them to stay there and they couldn't even go test out their career prospects without the chance of losing their entire financing for college. So some of those things I think are what I'm hearing from some people they feel like is overdue. The flip side of it is this Atlantic article is talking about this kind of new world. And I'm just going to quote from it here. It says many other programs will likely seek the right to offer new financial incentives to recruit and retain student athletes. That's what likely awaits a world in which college colleges compete to offer ever more incentives to even the wealthiest student athletes who are essential to their enrollment goals, their competitiveness, their alumni pride, and their fundraising. If colleges are now tempted to add new incentives to attract student athletes, what trade-offs will they have to make and where will those resources come from? Some of the early speculation is that they might cut some athletic programs that aren't as lucrative because now they're going to have to pay all the athletes, you know, or there's going to be some expectation of some of these extra bonuses for athletes. So there was talk about like, well, maybe they'll cut back like squash or lacrosse programs. The problem that this article pointed out is that many colleges have actually ramped up lacrosse and squash because those are the wealthiest families. Mm-hmm. Like the, <laughs> the, the, the type of student yep. who plays squash, the typically that family household has an income of $300,000 or more. So they're willing to take a loss on the athletic program to get the student and the family in the door as alumni. Um, but where the costs could be coming covered from is other sorts of student aid. So what could we could see is a loss of certain kinds of scholarship, a loss of funding that would normally be going to helping students on campus who are low income. They're going to move it over into this athletic incentive program, and that could hurt students who are low income who are coming in for academics. So I think it's just interesting. It's complicated, like many ethical, moral things are, mm-hmm. where I think there's some benefits from it. But I do think it's creating a whole new world. And then it does open the door for future legal challenges where we could see you know, salaries and all of that too. Well, does that kind of lead into maybe the discussion we'd had about the wealth and the wealth inequality that is taking place? Um, so we had talked about from this ProPublica article, essentially the, was it the top 20 or 25 richest Americans and their abilities to dodge certain taxes and, and things like that. And having some workarounds that the average person doesn't I don't know how much time we want to spend on this one specifically, but are there any additional thoughts that you guys have have thought of since then? I've just seen a number of articles that's looking back on 2020 already and and looking at what happened financially, who the winners and losers were, so to speak, and that there is a clear distinction that there was a lot of people who were already wealthy who just made out like gangbusters last year, not because they did anything devious, mind right. you. 
Um, not necessarily because they did anything devious, just because the way the world worked during COVID, they owned businesses or they were parts of organizations. That was exactly what people were looking for. They flourished. And there's a whole subset of people who just took a financial punch in the mouth last year and figuring out, and once again, not because it's anybody's fault, quote unquote, on either one side of that. It's just a reality. And the downside is for those who took that punch, there's just a huge ripple effect. You know, it has to do with healthcare. It has to do with paying your bills and putting food on the table and getting the the jacket that you need in the winter. I mean, practical things that uh, many people we just don't think about because we don't have to struggle with where those things are going to come from. But there's a lot more people than before the pandemic for whom those are very real problems. And I have not seen what kind of plans are in place. Um, I think Governor Whitmer has been trying to roll out some things for the state of Michigan. Um, but I, I don't remember what some of those were off the top of my head. So I, I don't know. I hope we see in the next couple months some real clear outlining of what it looks like to address that issue. And once again, I, I'm not trying to make a point that there were bad players. My point simply is that it happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to mention, so this this ties not only to the wealth inequality story, but some of the other episodes we did about, for example, education and the state of the entertainment industry post-COVID, just sort of all these areas where COVID might ripple. But NPR did a story recently, um, and this I hadn't heard this phrase before, but I think it's really interesting, about the great resignation. Have you guys seen anything mm. about this? So this idea that as pandemic life recedes in the United States, people are leaving their jobs in search of more money, more flexibility and more happiness. So the pandemic brought this kind of profound reckoning of people being like, what am I doing with my life? What's important to me? What are my priorities? Like spending time at home, working remotely, spending more time with family just caused us really big reflection in a lot of people around the world and about their industries. Like if you're in hospitality or healthcare, is this worth it? If a teacher, am I being valued enough in the classroom? We all had these sort of existential crises for different reasons in the last year. Mm. But I mean, the numbers on this are kind of astounding. Um, A record 4 million people quit their jobs in April, according to the labor department. That's this April, not April, not 2020. This spring, 4 million people quit their jobs at a time, supposedly that we're feeling safer and getting out of it. And people are able to go back to work. A record number of people in one month quit their jobs. And this economist in the story is talking about people quitting jobs in large numbers normally signals a healthy economy. But we're still in one of the worst recessions in history. Millions of people are still out of of jobs and unemployed. But employers are somehow uh, complaining about acute labor shortages, which we've talked about on the show before. And this economist is just like, we have not seen anything like this situation today. So it's either because of pay disparities, um, a sense of purpose. What am I doing with my life? Rethinking the direction of your life, feeling uh, worried about returning to unsafe workplaces. But all of these different factors are causing huge numbers of people to quit their jobs. And I think it's, I've even seen it just in my job as a journalist. I've covered several kind of notable people in governmental positions who are stepping down after you know years of being on it. And it's just interesting to think about what this might mean, you know, going forward what the next year or many years is going to look like. Do you have a breakdown there of what industries people are retiring from? 
Well, of the 4 million, the number one category I do, I have some numbers, um, more than 740,000 people uh, of the 4 million were in the leisure and hospitality industry, which includes hotels, bars, restaurants, theme parks, entertainment. Is that number one? Yes, it is. Okay. So that's what I was wondering, Beth, (laughs) because I've been trying to ask people who work in those industries, what has life been like for you? And across the board, They are so angry at humanity. Mm -hmm. They have just been treated so poorly for so long. And I wonder if, uh, well, okay, that stat actually confirms what I was thinking, which makes me really happy. Not the stat, but that it confirmed what I was, okay, never mind. Um, (laughs) I I wonder how many people are just going, I can't, for my emotional and mental well-being, I cannot sustain this job. And the solution to something like that is learning how to be decent human beings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I probably can't overstress anytime you're in a business where someone has to face people all day, they have almost guaranteed had people rip them a new one that day and be unfair and just be jerks. And I got to be honest, I don't blame them. Mm -hmm. Not many people are built to take that kind of verbal and mental abuse over and over. And I wonder with you, and you can comment if you've got other stuff on that list as well, but I wonder how many of those people quitting jobs, part of it is, I I think the existential thing you were talking about, what do I really want to do with my life? What's worth it? But I wonder how much of it is people going, I cannot take this abuse anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it definitely seemed by industry that that was one reason. The other two main things cited in the article, one of which you just mentioned is just the reprioritize, reprioritization of a work-life balance. So when people actually were forced to spend time working from home, one, and this includes my office, we sold our office building during the pandemic. Many people realize they can work just as effectively at home. I think yeah. a lot of employers have been slow to embrace like a remote work concept or working from home some days a week or whatever, because there's always this kind of outdated fear, I think, of lack of productivity. You know, my employees at home in their pajamas mm-hmm. and they're going to be paying attention to their kids and not focused on work. But I think a lot of people saw in the pandemic that it can work successfully and they can cut their office costs down or eliminate them completely. Um, so the freedom on the employer side and the, and the employee side now, people are like, I, I want to work flexibly. I, I want to be able to just like travel with my family to California for a week and I'll still work in the mornings on the computer yeah. and get my work done. But then I have the afternoons free. I don't need to be 40 hours a week chained to a desk and I don't need to be doing it for a job that doesn't treat me well or pay me well. Um, and work is no longer just about paying the bills. That was the last part of the article as many people are having this realization of yes, I need to make money. I need to support my family, but I can't do it without accommodating this, my life too, that work now has to accommodate life, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. These are huge, profound labor shifts, you know, three, all three of those things are major, but to have them all happen at the same time is pretty, pretty profound. Yeah. It'd be really interesting just to be able to continue to break those numbers down because as we've seen with the pandemic, it caused, yeah, some thinking for people or to stop and pause and say like, what is really worth it anymore? Is it worth it for me to continue to go to my job in in the hospitality industry and be subjected to abuse from customers or whatever? So I wonder how many of those people were like taking an early retirement. They're like, there's just, the world can change any second. I can't be here any longer. Or also how much of it is coupled with kind of this perfect storm of, I think millennials and the generations younger that we're already kind of trending that direction of like, I actually value more freedom and a say over my 
my schedule than I do maybe the dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you can have both, but I think that that was already happening for a lot of those generations. And this might've just, you know, pushed it even faster. Taylor, it sounds like you're describing a kind of a reconstruction of what the good life looks like. Yeah. And I wonder even if we're like, if, if we're not in the hospitality industry ourselves or people listening are in one of these fields, these will still have profound shifts for all of us because businesses then are going to rearrange their business model among or around the labor that they have or don't have. Right. So we've already seen this in the restaurant industry where people who can't get enough staff they're you know, now they're closing two days a week instead of one, or they're shortening up their hours. They're like, we're not doing lunch anymore. Um, I've also seen restaurants respond to the lack of care towards their workers by adding automatic 20% gratuities to checks. Now it's like, you don't get an option to tip. You're going to tip if you're going to eat in this restaurant because you're going to take care of the staff. I mean, that's just one industry, but if you extrapolate that out across the boards, the selling of huge office buildings, like, you know, like at a Google or something like that, mm. maybe that whole workplace will change. I did see that JP Morgan in New York has had people working remotely across the country. And they've now said, if you want New York wages, you got to work in the New York office. You don't get to earn your salary that you uh. were before and work from home. You, you get paid this salary because you're in a very expensive city to live. If you're going to work remotely from Omaha, we're not going to give you the same salary, even though it's the same job. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting line in the stand to take of being like, we're going to actually base you based on the cost of living of the city mm-hmm. and not just the value of what you're producing as a worker. I mean, all of these conversations could really change the workplace for a lot of us, even mm-hmm. the ones that we're not in will still be impacted by it in some way. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. Um, hmm. If there's nothing else on that topic, yeah, maybe go. we can shift to the gun culture discussion. So um, I don't know if a ton has happened um, in terms of. We didn't fix gun control. Yeah, in we the didn't, last, it hasn't. Like, I don't there's think still guns, been, Taylor. Yes, there are still guns. <laughs> um, it hasn't been fixed. But I thought that was really interesting discussion that we had because, um, you know, we looked at some of the policies that are involved, but also it was a bit of a philosophical take. And the thing, one uh, article that you had shared is something that I've thought of quite a bit, which is there was a active shooting and someone who was trying to prevent the crime or the act from continuing was actually shot by police. Right. And I know that's not the first instance of that happening, but it is something I've often thought about is it's just one of those things you can't account for as a, as someone that would be carrying a gun, a good guy with a gun stopped a bad guy with a gun. And then he was shot by another good guy with a gun. Mm. So he, uh, yeah. So a gun owner showed up. There was a active shooting involved. He, I can't remember. We can look up the article right now. I can't remember if he shot or he stopped the other, the other guy. I think he he might have picked, but he he stopped the he stopped the shooter. But he picked up his weapon, and so the police showed up on the scene, and this guy is holding weapons, and they shot him, and then realized belatedly that he had been the hero who had stopped this scene. But the problem is, and I think we've talked about this, you know, is the good guy with a gun theory is that cops don't know who the good guy is. And also we discussed, I think, more ethically and profoundly, like, how do you define a good guy and a bad guy? But when cops show up, it's just a frantic emergency. They're there to control the scene immediately and stop anyone else from getting harmed. They don't have a lot of time to stop and ask, like, hey, what's your motives? Are you a good guy with a gun? Are you the mm-hmm. bad guy with a gun? I think what it shows is just having more guns increases the likelihood that more people get hurt in a scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's something that really has to be considered. And again, I'm a gun owner. I enjoy guns. I think people should be able to have guns, but I want to see some, 
some further restraints put in place, some uh, requirements for increased training and different things like that. Uh, we need to have these, if, if there's going to be regular citizens that are running around carrying guns, weren't there some things that um, were um, in Texas where they had said essentially now you don't need to have I a think it's Texas. open carry license right. in order to be able to carry a gun. And so I think it's probably a little too early to look at the statistics from something like that being implemented. But those are things that, you know, we just, that to me is just a bit of a stretch to say, don't worry about it. This is Texas. Anybody can carry a gun. I'd be really curious. And I hope that the numbers trend in an okay direction in terms of how many people are killed each year by guns in the state of Texas. And I did, there was an AP article since we did that episode that I thought was kind of interesting where they talked about, so gun sales overall had a record setting surge during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, probably for some reasons we talked about on the show, which is a lot of gun ownership seems kind of fear-based. Um, so it makes sense that at a protective time, people might be stocking up. Um, but among those sales, it did say that the number of people who were stopped from buying guns also hit an all-time high of more than 300,000. And that was because of um, background checks. And about 42% of those 300,000 people who were turned down for buying guns had felony convictions on their records. So I think with a limited amount of gun control we have in this country, it's pretty telling to me that that many people, you know, a third of a million people were stopped from buying guns, 42% who had felony convictions, that it worked. Um, but that's like the minimal amount of, you know, gun control we have in the country. So mm -hmm. it maybe would be more effective if we had better gun control regulations in place, but at least that one particular one was stopping a lot of people who had felonies from buying guns. Yeah. I think as you said, purchasing guns, especially during the last maybe year or two has been kind of a fear-based activity. And so if that's going to be a fear-based activity, which I think gun owners admit, they mm -hmm. admit enough when they say, well, I need to be able to protect my family. Well, in order to protect something, that means you're fearful of a threat. And so if you're going to um, be buying these guns based out of fear, then I think it, it would serve you well to also understand the very real fears that other people have of an influx of guns in the community or um, an ease of access for guns like there would be in Texas. You know, listen to your fellow people who are like, Maybe this, uh, this, you know, this policy scares me a little bit. So I'd be curious how it plays out. If it's a fear-based activity, just try to understand other people's fears on the, on the flip side. Yeah. The only other gun story I just wanted to plug because I thought it was so clever <laughs> was, and we, and you, we, the three of us, I, I sent it to you, we talked about it before, but was this kind of, I guess it, a stunt is probably a fair word to call it, but this group that included parents who uh, had a child who was killed in Parkland in that school shooting. Um, they arranged for a former NRA president to give a graduation commencement speech uh, to a high school. And this president did not know that this was in fact a fake high school. And they went on stage and they were giving an address to an empty field of chairs. Ostensibly, it was a rehearsal for what would be then a later ceremony where those chairs would be filled with students. So he was asked to give his full speech. And um, this high school was uh, 
supposedly named for James Madison. So he's mentioning, you know, he's talking to this field of empty chairs, telling students to follow your dreams, um, to know that the Second Amendment is one of the most important rights you can have, um, that you're going to find people in your life who are going to try to prevent you from standing up for the Second Amendment, but you should. In fact, those chairs represented all of the students who had been killed in school shootings in that year. Um, So he was really speaking to a field of empty chairs representing dead students. Very eerie. Very eerie. And, and not a great speech. It wouldn't have been great regardless. It and the way the video was cut together. Yeah. I mean, it's like no one at, who, who had a high school graduation wants to talk about the Second Amendment anyways, like maybe <laughs> rethink your audience. But interspersed with 911 calls from active school shootings and shots of those empty chairs of students who didn't actually get to make it to their high school graduation. It was very powerful, wow. <laughs> very powerful video. Um, and I just thought because the NRA is such a marketing giant and just dominates the conversation every now and then I sort of enjoy when someone actually can get something over at the NRA. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a pretty powerful PR stunt. So yeah. I just want to mention and, that. And I think even if you're upset that he was kind of duped into sure. um, giving that, cause he was, he was, he was, into he it. was, yeah. But just the pure visual of it is just stunning. And then like you said, with the 911 calls interspersed within that, it really is harrowing and it's, it's very I, or unsettling, I guess is the word where it's like, you're remembering all the headlines from the the shootings that have taken place in your lifetime. And that's dominated my headlines my entire life. I was alive for Columbine and ever since then it's been a weekly thing. And so I found it interesting. Don't we often hear the phrase that freedom comes at a price? Mm -hmm. Every freedom we have comes at a price. And I think what that was showing was that there is a price associated with this freedom. And what we wrestle with as a culture is what price are we willing to pay? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good visual for that. Um, any other topics sticking out that we had covered that you want to discuss? Quick, yeah, quick comment. We had talked about some issues involving race. And in Canada, in the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of headlines where they have been finding the bodies of children who died at the Indian schools in Canada, of which the U.S. also had a version. In Canada, they were largely run by the Catholic Church. Or I, I believe the state ran them, but had the Catholic Church implement it. And they're finding, I think the count is up to thousands now mm-hmm. of children, many of them anonymous, um, who died at these schools. And to the point where there's been a pretty large protests at Catholic dioceses. And I'm, I think Trudeau has come, weighed in on it. Trudeau, right? Mm-hmm. Um I think he's weighed on it as well, but there, Canada's coming to a real moment of reckoning about their history of Indian schools, which actually closed uh, later than the ones here in the United States did. I think their last ones went into the 90s. Wow. And I think our last one in the States closed around 1980, I believe. But I have a feeling that's going to continue to be an unfolding story here in the United States also, because that went on for a long time. And just coming to grips with... You know, the reality of generations lost, you know, generations Mm -hmm. lost. It's just, uh, it's a hard, hard story, but I think something that we need to look at, not look away from, we need to look at it. And I think in the context of, you know, we had the most recent episode where we talked about the 4th of July and Juneteenth, I saw on the 4th of July, which was this past weekend. um, So someone in my Facebook page had posted something like, um, 
today is a day where all the white men are in the country celebrate their freedom or something along mm-hmm. those lines. And then it, it sparked this little debate in the comment section where really? people, where people yeah. I know, where people like, can't we even just have the 4th of July? Like, can't we just have hot dogs and fireworks and just take a day off from American you know, flag speedos, yeah. politicizing everything? <laughs> you know, there was just like some of that, like, gosh, do we have to fight about everything? But I did think it was interesting that, um, Someone waited in the comment section who I know personally, who is Native American and said, thank you for posting this. We're spending this time today grieving and thinking about all the children whose bodies were recovered recently. And it did what we talked about on the show before. It did sort of hit home because I feel that tendency too. sometimes. I know we all get exhausted from these political debates and politically correct and what's the right thing to say. And do we have to rethink everything and redo our history? And I I get it's exhausting work to wrestle with that. And sometimes you do just want to be like, I just want to have a hot dog and a sparkler and Mm -hmm. rah, rah America. And do we have to fight about it? But that person's comment brought it home to me that that's not everyone's lived experience. And for the, for some on the fourth, that's exactly what they're thinking about. They're thinking about those lost children. There, there's something to be said for weeping with those who weep. I'm trying to think of a similar setting or at least trying to use an analogy here. Let's say I'm at a wedding and everybody's celebrating and I see somebody at a table who is clearly not, and might even be crying. There's part of being human where I go over and go, why aren't you celebrating? Can we talk about it? Mm-hmm. And maybe uh, they just lost a spouse or maybe they had had a wedding just like that and it had all fallen apart, but they're grieving something. I wouldn't look at them and go, could you just celebrate this day? Yeah. I, I would hope that I would sit down with them and at least be present for a time and go, I hear you. This is just hard for you in ways it isn't for others. And I, I want you to know that you're seen. Um, And I I don't understand why we can't do that. When we look around at any time that we are celebrating and we see people who are not, who are in fact doing the opposite on those days and they're grieving, it's always worth asking the question, why? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if we would come to find out that they, maybe they shouldn't be because they misunderstand something or, okay, then we can have a good conversation, just kind of helping us to understand the world. But on the other hand, I might sit down and they go, yeah, I'm grieving because this is what happened to me or my ancestors, et cetera. And when you celebrate that, this is what we remember. And I honestly, I don't know why we would look away from that. It's, except for it's part if, of our shared story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Except for if you're there and you're like, I just want to have fun. And this is like harshing my vibe. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want to do the Macarena on the dance floor. And like, why is this person crying here? Like, this yeah. is annoying. Like, I just want to do this. I think that's the response that happens mm-hmm. a lot. It's like, I yeah. just want to focus on the part of history that makes me feel good or that makes me, you know, reiterate my beliefs in America or whatever it is. And this is an inconvenience over here. That's like intruding on my more simplistic or happy <laughs> worldview. But I think you're right. It's it, that ignores the reality of people around you. And and I also don't think just to add a final note to this, I also don't think it means you are deprived of your ability right. to se- celebrate. Right, right. And the anal- mm-hmm. analogy you gave, you spend a time, you grieve with mm-hmm. those who are grieving. You also celebrate with those who are celebrating. Yep. I think you can do both. Yeah. It, you celebrate with an added awareness, I think. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. As we talk about the Native American children's bodies being unearthed, I think about the kind of the symbolism in that. And so I wasn't alive when those schools were running. If they closed in the 80s, I wasn't born until 1990. And so, but at some point in history, these children were either dying because they were malnourished or whether they were killed, I I don't know. Um, But they were physically buried. Like 
you didn't serve the purpose or you didn't survive the purpose that we had for you. And so we're, we're now burying you. And as they're being unearthed, I feel like now in my lifetime, we're having this opportunity to come to terms with that because we're seeing these bodies come out of the ground and to look and understand like what that meant and what that still means. Yet we have other parties, other groups of people that are now trying to not in a physical sense, bury those corpses, but are trying to still bury it under something. Mm -hmm. And, and there's major news networks that are all concerned about this, like this, this topic of white guilt. And we, we talked about critical race theory a little bit. I think we truly should do a full episode on it, but you see these things like, well, we may even need to implement body cameras so that we can monitor what teachers are teaching because we don't want critical race theory in our schools. And I understand that's like a, an extreme thought, but that's being entertained in Mm -hmm. certain circles. And so to me, if I wasn't alive during the actual physical burying of those Native American children, then I think my responsibility is to make sure that I'm not uh, figuratively burying them in my own lifetime too. Yeah. That's good. That's profound. <laughs> I feel like that's good. One, a good, good hey, did I yeah. make my yeah. point? Good, good yeah. one, Taylor. <laughs> All right, sweet. <laughs> I'm glad I got a point in. Um, I, I mean, are there any other um, of the episodes that you guys would want to discuss? I feel like freedom for some was a really powerful episode that we did. And I think we just kind of touched, touched on that pretty well. Is there anything else we had um, vaccine eligibility? Do we want to talk about that at all or no? I would only make one comment that the Delta variant where it is surging in the U S it is surging in areas that are more largely unvaccinated. And I would love to be able to see stuff stay open in the United States and in Michigan. Mm -hmm. But I do have concerns seeing what's happening around the world with this Delta variant and some other ones coming up. Uh, Areas that are largely unvaccinated are really experiencing surges again. In fact, in the U.S. right now, Missouri is having a real problem. There are several cities that have run out of ventilators. They're being overwhelmed again with COVID patients who are in pretty serious condition. And I... A, I, I hope that they all get better and I would like to see the virus itself go away. But uh, I do have concerns with these new variants that are coming up. They seem to respond pretty quickly. Uh, what is it? Nature finds a way. Mm-hmm. Is that <laughs> Jurassic Park line? And uh, yeah, I'm, I was feeling pretty good about the fall and now I'm starting to have some concerns again. Mm. Have you seen anything in terms of, so we had all disclosed we were vaccinated and this was back when we, actually when we recorded the vaccine eligibility, uh, Anthony, you were the only one that had your vaccine. It wasn't yet available for Beth and I, but since then we have been, has there been anything that you've seen pop up in terms of, um, kind of like denigrating the need for the vaccine or, or saying that there's some negative side effects, anything that you want to speak to that has come up? I mean, I think I'm happy in Michigan that we're, we're kind of crawling. I wish we were running, but, um, you know, we're, I think it's like 66, 67, something like that right now, um, of at least one dose administered. And then up in our area, we're actually lucky. We're getting more into that 70% threshold, um, which I'm happy to see, but yeah, I share Anthony's concern about the Delta variant or just any possible variants. So, you know, the lower the herd immunity, then the likelihood that it will mutate again. And then we may get a mutation that is right now, thankfully Pfizer, which is what I have, but the other ones too, I think Moderna and, and Johnson and Johnson are, are completing their tests, but 
appear to have about the same level of strength, if not a little bit weaker against that variant. So it seems to be offering good protection against the Delta variant, but I just feel like I'm worried it's a matter of time before very vaccine resistant strain comes forward. And then I think we'll have be able to adjust. And I do think this vaccine can be adapted and we may have to get boosters or, you know, I'll do it. I'll do any annual thing I need to do to get this thing under control. But I am worried about people who maybe had a sense of protection because now a lot of people are vaccinated around them or things reopen and they have a sense of going back to normal. And I do know people who are unvaccinated right now, and I'm just very worried about them that that variant really seems to be raging through and also seems to be making people sicker. It's more infectious and they're being in the hospital longer. So it's, it's a more serious strain is just my encouragement again, for people if they're not vaccinated to think about it again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had seen an article, I think as recently as a couple of weeks ago where I think I believe this was nationally where they're saying 99.2% of hospitalizations were from unvaccinated uh, individuals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I think for me, in terms of the vaccine, we had all said in that episode that we would stop short of like a federal mandate. Like Mm -hmm. you have to do this if you're going to live in the United States, not something that I don't think any of us feel comfortable with, but freedom is a word that comes up a lot on this podcast and we all have kind of different definitions of it and what the cost of that is. But I think about that quite a bit. I've been able to, I think, approach a lot of people with um, a renewed sense of grace. Like even if I know that they weren't vaccinated um, because I'm vaccinated and I feel pretty well protected against them where I think my fuse might shorten is if there's all of a sudden some rollbacks and maybe there's a, another shutdown in the future or something. And it can be pinpointed back to the fact that certain groups of people didn't get vaccinated. Well, them exercising their freedom and not getting a vaccine will then in some way infringe upon my freedom and being able to move about the state and the country. And that's, that's going to be an interesting conversation. Hopefully it doesn't get to that. Mm -hmm. um, But I see a world in which it could. You know, it creates an interesting possible conversation. Early on, a lot of the discussion was on how at-risk populations should simply isolate themselves and let the rest of us get on with our lives, which was that point was discussion of the elderly or the people with a lot of comorbidities. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens if now the population that's at risk is unvaccinated? Would we then hear the same argument then we would recommend that you isolate yourself so the rest of us can get on with our lives. I don't think you'd hear repetition of the argument. No, I think it will probably change. And I I should share my Taylor, you know, as we're wrapping up, my concern too is, you know, kids like in, in those demographics who can't get vaccinated because, you know, going back to school, that's like now what a month and a half away. I've got nieces and nephews who are thinking about going back. You are on a school board. Like it's just an interesting time to think about those variants ripping through those communities. So, yeah. Hey, this was, I think, a really appropriate 10th episode as we revisited some of the great conversations that we have had. Um, We will have, I think, a very special uh, number 11 as we'll have a more specific topic then. But hopefully you guys enjoyed tuning in as we revisited some of these things. And what an absolute pleasure. 10 down. Yeah, our podcast is almost a teenager. Yes, nearly. I know. (laughs) (laughs) This was great. Thanks for being here, guys.